That's all I have, all right? By way of announcements, please open your Bibles with me to Exodus chapter 25. Last week for our first Giving Sunday, we considered the contributions that were given for the tabernacle. This week, uh, we begin to study God's instruction for how to actually build the tabernacle. And we begin by looking at His instruction about the Ark of the Covenant. Family, I spent a lot of time on my face in prayer this week, asking God to be faithful to His Word, to give us a true understanding of His holiness and of His mercy as we consider the Ark of the Covenant together. The Ark which is the only piece of furniture that is to be found in the most holy place. Let's begin by reading verses 8 to 22. God says, and let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst, exactly as I show show you concerning the pattern of the tabernacle and all its furniture, so you shall make it. They shall make an ark of acacia wood, two cubits and a half shall be its length, a cubit and a half its breadth, and a cubit and a half its height. You shall overlay it with pure gold. Inside and outside shall you overlay it, and you shall make on it a molding of gold around it. You shall cast four rings of gold for it and put them on its four feet, two rings on the one side of it and two rings on the other side of it. You shall make poles of acacia wood and overlay them with gold, and you shall put the poles into the rings on the sides of the ark to carry the ark by them. The poles shall remain in the rings of the ark. They shall not be taken from it. And you shall put into the ark the testimony that I shall give you. You shall make a mercy seat of pure gold. Two cubits and a half shall be its length, and a cubit and a half its breadth. And you shall make two cherubim of gold of hammered work shall you make them on the two ends of the mercy seat. Make one cherubim on the one end and one cherubim on the other end of one piece with the mercy seat shall you make the cherubim on its two ends. The cherubim shall spread out their wings above, overshadowing the mercy seat with their wings, their faces one to another toward the mercy seat shall the faces of the cherubim be. And you shall put the mercy seat on the top of the ark, and in the ark you shall put the testimony that I shall give you. There I will meet with you. And from above the mercy seat, from between the two cherubim that are on the ark of the testimony, I will speak with you about all that I will give you in commandment for the people of Israel. Amen. May God bless his holy and sacred word this morning. God wants to dwell with his people. He wants to live with them. He wants to be a source of strength. He wants to be an orientation of truth, an anchor for their souls. And 
how he plans to do that is by dwelling at the very center of who they are. He is giving instruction now for this tabernacle, which is a 15 by 40 foot tent. And it is to be built and then erected at the very center of the Israelite camp. All of the Israelites in their different tribes would literally live around this tent with God's holy and powerful presence literally at the center of their lives. Daily existence would happen with this tent within eyesight. Meals would be eaten, relationships would be shared, conflicts would be dealt with, festivals would be celebrated, wars would be fought, life would be lived with God's presence physically present at the center of their lives. And this is by God's design and heart. Friends, as we begin to study the tabernacle together, we should be reminded in a very clear way that God does not desire to occupy a periphery part of your life. God does not desire to live on the edge of you and your family's life. He is not interested in being an add-on to your schedule with soccer and ballet and the Eagles. He is not interested in sharing prime real estate with your career or your physical fitness or your family memories. No, He desires and He demands the most central place in our lives. He will not share prime real estate with anyone or anything. And this is not because he is like the boss at work who demands the bigger office because he needs the office to feel good about himself. No, this is because God knows that he is true north for his people. He is the great I am, the self-existent one. Friend, you will experience the most peace. You will experience the most hope and strength and joy, not when God is set to the side or is an afterthought or a secondary or tertiary solution only after you've gone to your psychologist or taken your medicine or read the latest self-help book. No, your best life now comes by removing yourself from the center of it and allowing God's presence in all of his transcendent holiness and glory and majesty to occupy that place alone. This is the message of the tabernacle, which we are going to spend about four months studying together. And it all begins with God's instruction about the Ark of the Covenant. This is the first, this is the most important piece of furniture in the whole tabernacle. It will be spoken of throughout God's word as the very throne of God. This Ark of the Covenant will occupy alone the Holy of Holies, the most holy place in the tabernacle. And friends, to consider it today together, to consider it should, should in some ways make us tremble. The Holy of Holies would have been a very quiet place. It would have been a very reverential place. Today we must not approach it tritely. We must not consider it with, with just carelessness. We must consider it with reverence and awe. And we must consider it with joy and thankfulness because through it, God shows us abundant mercy. The main idea for our sermon today is this. The Ark of the Covenant perfectly pictures God's holiness and mercy for sinful people. The Ark of the Covenant perfectly pictures God's holiness and mercy for sinful people. And we have four points this morning. 
Number one, the design of the ark, verses 10 and 11. Point two, the content of the ark, verses 16 and 21. Point three, the holiness of the ark, verses 12 to 15. And point number four, the mercy of the ark, verses 17 to 22. Let's begin with the first, which is the design of the ark. And so as God begins to instruct Moses and the Israelites on how they are to design this tabernacle, it's kind of strange that he does not begin with the outside courtyard. He does not even begin with the actual tent or, or any of the other furniture. No, he begins with the Ark of the Covenant. Why? Because the Ark of the Covenant is the centerpiece. Verse 22 says that it is upon this Ark of the Covenant that God, Yahweh, is going to meet with the people of Israel. Listen, the entire tabernacle was to be seen as God's dwelling place, but he begins his design from the inside out. He starts with the the content of the Holy of Holies, the most holy place, the most restricted place. God begins his instruction with the Ark. Why? What is even this Ark of the Covenant all about? What is it? Well, let's look at verses 10 to 11. It says, They shall make an ark of acacia wood. Two cubits and a half shall be its length, and a cubit and a half its breadth, and a cubit and a half its height. So, so these are the measurements and the design of this ark. But what is it? It's basically a wooden box. A cubit is about 18 inches, so according to verse 10, this is a wooden box that is about 3.7 feet, 3.75 feet long, 2.25 feet wide, and about 2.25 feet high. It's, it's a medium-sized wooden chest. But then it says in verse 11 that they are to overlay it with pure gold. So it's a wooden box, but it is clearly no ordinary wooden box. It's overlaid with gold. Gold speaks of value, obviously it it speaks of weight and substance. Gold speaks of royalty and glory and beauty and goodness. It, It was to be overlaid with pure gold, not just any gold, but gold with all of its impurities, all of its dross, all of its imperfections removed from it. Why? Because impurities and imperfections cannot be in the presence of God. The Ark of the Covenant's a big deal. It will be spoken of throughout Scripture as the throne of God, but the Ark of the Covenant is a medium-sized box. It is impressive. It is valuable. It's a beautiful thing, but, but fundamentally, the, the first piece of furniture in the tabernacle, the, the most important piece of furniture, is a chest. Friends, think about this with me. Yes, the detail is important, the beauty and the craftsmanship that we see here and then throughout the rest of the tabernacle. Yes, every detail is important. All of it is theologically and gospel rich. But when it comes down to it, we are talking about a wooden box and a tent of cloth. Think about the humility of God. Think about his loving condescension towards his people. This is the God of the universe who is more valuable than every ounce of gold in the entire world piled up together. The God who created all the gold in the world. He is allowing his presence to be represented by a little wooden box with a little gold overlaying it. Think about that. Think about the humility here. 
You know, it probably feels better to our, our human sensibilities that God would just stay on the mountain, right? God, just move Mount Sinai around with the people of Israel. You're God, you're big enough, you can do that. Why don't you just stay on the mountain? No, he creates a tabernacle, and even more so, he creates a small wooden box. Think about the loving condescension of our God. And, and actually, think about the, the demonstration of true power and, and leadership that this is. Right, we like to think about leadership and power and position as being those who have control and those who have influence and who can make other people serve them in any way that we, we want. Th- those with power, at least in a worldly sense in our culture, demand the bigger office and the higher salary. But that's not godly power. True power is power that lovingly condescends to care for those around you. That's what we see in the very character of God himself in this text. The, the tabernacle is beautiful and it indeed will magnificently reflect God's glory and beauty. But we should not move quickly beyond the fact that he is lovingly, eagerly seeking to dwell among his people. And to do so, he condescends towards them. And friends, not just in the Ark of the Covenant, right? But even more so in his son, Jesus. There is a day coming when this wooden box of the ark will be replaced with another wooden box, the wooden manger in which the Son of God in flesh would lay. God the Son lovingly condescending in the ultimate way to live with us and to ultimately save us. Listen, the the wooden box with the gold overlaying it, which is the Ark of the Covenant, it just points forward to the wooden manger and ultimately to the wooden cross where God condescends in the ultimate way, even to the point of death. This is the point of the Ark, the design of the Ark. And that brings us to our second point, point number two, the content of the ark. So more than just the design, we must also consider the content. Look look at verse 16. It says, and you shall put into the ark the testimony that I shall give you. And it repeats that again in verse 21. The, The ark of the covenant is called the ark of the covenant because the covenantal documents, the testimony, the 10 commandments given by God, God are now to be forever held within this box. There are a few other things that we be put in there as well, but they are not spoken of in this text. And so think about this with me. The ark will be described multiple times as the throne of God. And if that's true, then his presence is going to rest upon, he will in a sense sit upon his testimony, his covenantal word. This is amazing. Think about how for all of the centuries that this ark will be absolutely central to Israel's identity, God's testimony his covenant was to always be before him his his covenantal words were in his constant view he is in a sense sitting upon them and so church even as we've seen the last couple of weeks together we see again how immensely important and eternal his words are grass will fade away we will fade away but the word of the lord remains forever 
Our God is a covenant-making and covenant-keeping God, and he wants us to believe that so much that he places his covenant words at his very feet. He places his words of promise in this box so that we will clearly see that he is forever committed to keeping his word. His word is in the holy of holies with him. Isn't that powerful? His word is in many ways equal to his holy presence. Christian, if you want to be ushered into the presence of God tomorrow morning, if on Thursday you're tired and be down and you need the presence of God, open your Bibles. Open your Bibles and read and encounter the covenantal promises of your faithful God. And actually, Redeemer, let me, let me encourage you, let me honor you in a particular way here for being a people of this book. You love this book. Greta visited a, one of the ladies' groups in one of the, the fellowship groups recently, and she came away saying, these ladies know God's word. It's beautiful. Last week, it was special for me in the, in the multi-purpose room. There's, there's something about being in that room again. I think it's the light. I think it's being closer together. I can see all your faces better. But last week, more than even just seeing your faces, what I noticed, what stood out to me as I got up to preach God's word was the amount of open Bibles on your laps and the amount of pens and papers that were taking notes throughout the gathering. It was beautiful. Redeemer, thank you. Thank you for knowing with me that it is not a preacher and it is not a certain type of experience which will usher you into God's presence. No, it is God's holy and inerrant word, his testimony about himself. May God's word always be central to who we are as a church family. As God himself places it at his feet, it is always in his view, even in the holy of holies. May it always be in our view as well. May we love, respect, honor, and obey this word point number three the holiness of the ark there is indeed so much comfort and so much hope and so much strength in the fact that god's word is in the ark of the covenant and that his presence is going to be above it but but if we stop and think about this even more we will quickly realize that there is also something very troubling about this because as committed as God is to his word, as much as he will never break even a single word of his covenant promise to us, you and I can't say the same, can we? We can't say the same. Now, as enthusiastic as the Israelites were back in chapter 24 to say all that the Lord has spoken, we will do. As enthusiastic as they are to say that, we know from their history, we know from our history that we cannot be we have not been true to his covenant faithfulness or to his covenant word our sinfulness condemns him condemns us paul says in romans chapter 2 you who boast in the law dishonor god by breaking the law that's what the Israelites did. They, they boasted in the law. They were so honored to be god's covenant people but but as much as they boasted in the law they broke the law and it's not just the israelites it's all of us Romans chapter 3, Paul says, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside, together they have become worthless. Listen, as much as God is a covenant-keeping God, we are a covenant-breaking people. And so think about this with me. This is troubling. 
in the very presence of God, in the holy of holies, there is a constant reminder of God's covenantal faithfulness, but also a constant condemning reminder of our covenant unfaithfulness. And so this is why the Ark of the Covenant must be placed in the Holy of Holies with a very thick curtain separating the Ark from everything else because God's holy presence is a reminder not just of His goodness and His word of His power and faithfulness, but it also reminds us and condemns us of our own iniquity. We cannot stand in His presence. And so... This is why in verses 12 to 15, God tells Moses that the ark is to have these golden rings attached to it. And then they are to make two poles of acacia wood and overlay them with gold. And those poles are supposed to go through the rings on the ark. Why? To carry it. When the Israelites would move from place to place, they will need to move the ark with them. But they can't touch the ark. They cannot touch the ark because they are not holy. They are sinful. Later we will see that anyone that touches the ark or even enters the holy place in an unworthy manner will die because God is in that place. His holiness resides there. This is the holiness of the ark. God's presence is glorious, church. God's presence is holy and good. The psalmist says that in his presence is fullness of joy, but that's not true for sinful people who are separated from his presence by their iniquity. Christian, non-Christian, our sin is a big problem. It separates us from God. We We don't like to think this way about ourselves, but it's true. We we are a sinful and rebellious people, and we deserve the judgment of God. To, To even touch his holiness in our sinful state would be to be consumed by his wrath. Listen, there is a very powerful moment in Israel's history which portrays this for us. Years and years after this moment in the book of Exodus, in 2 Samuel chapter 6, when King David and the Israelite people are bringing the Ark of the Covenant back to Jerusalem, it says that they place the Ark on a cart that is being pulled by oxen, and while they are journeying back to Jerusalem, it says that they are singing and dancing before the presence of the Lord. There is much joy in His presence. But then it says, the oxen stumbled as they went. And when the oxen stumbled, the Ark of the Covenant became imbalanced and started to fall. And a man named Uzzah, it says, reached out his hand to steady the Ark. And do you know what happened? He was struck dead right then and there. God struck him down, it says, because of his error. But why? What error did he commit? Wasn't he trying to do a good thing? He was trying to keep the ark from falling into the mud. That seems like a godly thing to do. What was his error? His error was presuming that before the holy presence of God, he as a sinner was more holy and more pure than the mud on the ground. But he wasn't. The mud had never sinned against God. 
The mud had never willfully rebelled against God. The mud had never sinned against his holiness or against his sovereignty. But Uzzah, as a sinful man, had. And so for him to presume that his sinful hand touching God's presence was better than the mud was to make a grievous error. Oh, friend, we do not like to consider our sin in this way. But we must, because God's word does. We must consider it in this way. It's bad news, but we must consider the bad news before we get to the glory of the good news we must consider how bad it is you know earlier this week I had a pretty stark experience at home I was in my home office I was preparing this sermon I was considering the the holiness of God his purity his his blamelessness his his perfections I was sitting in my office I had my coffee the the morning sun was shining through the window it felt like a holy moment it was great And then I was called out of my office to deal with a plumbing issue in my house. And let's just say it was not a pleasant plumbing issue. It was, in fact, extremely unpleasant, the kind that you want to take a shower afterwards. But but, but in that moment, I had the thought, this is very much like what it is, according to God's word, for us to enter into his presence in our sinful state. God's word is clear about this, friend. Isaiah chapter 64, verse 6, we have all become like one who is unclean, and all of our righteous deeds are like polluted garments. Another translation says like menstrual cloth. Paul says in Philippians chapter 3 that he counts even his best deeds as rubbish. That word rubbish can be translated as dung or as excrement. This is why God's presence needs to be cut off in the Holy of Holies. This is why he has them create poles to carry the ark. Even our best deeds are tainted by sin and need to be forgiven before the incredible purity and holiness and glory of our God. There is this separation. But this is not the end of the story. No, it's not. Paul says in Romans chapter 3, one of my favorite verses, does our faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? Paul responds by saying, by no means. By no means. In the midst of considering God's holiness and our unworthiness, church, we now encounter the glorious truth of his mercy. Point number for the mercy of the ark. Verses 12 to 16, they, they do speak about the holiness of the ark with the poles and the carefulness. And, and I wonder, I wonder if the barrier of God's holiness because of our sin, I, I wonder if it makes you feel like, like God doesn't really want to be with you. Does it make you feel like God is in just some ways acquiescing towards the Israelites, almost like he is begrudgingly obliging them, but he doesn't really want to dwell in their midst? That's almost what verses 12 to 16 can make us feel, isn't it? But praise God for verse 17. It says, you shall make a mercy seat of pure gold. And then it gives the design of it. It's to be pure gold. It is to fit perfectly over the box. 
verses 18 to 20, talk about the cherubim on the cover of it. It says that they are to design two cherubim because both here and elsewhere in God's word, cherubim are spoken of as the angelic beings who are responsible for guarding the way into God's holy presence. So there are to be two of them on this mercy seat. They are to be facing each other with their wings spread out above them and towards each other, in some ways creating a a focal point for God's presence to be. And then verse 22, from above the mercy seat, from between the two cherubim that are on the ark of the testimony I will speak with you so when all is said and done this is what the ark of the covenant probably looked like and it says that God would meet with them and speak to them from above the mercy seat and in all of this we see God's intentionality and even his eagerness to dwell with his people He he can't just ignore the problem of sin. He's too holy. He's too just to do that. He can't just act as if our sin is not a big deal. No, sin inevitably separates us from God. But listen, the presence of that problem does not mean that God does not have a loving and glorious solution to the problem. It does not mean that God has not from before the beginning of time had a perfect plan of redemption to restore all things to himself, things in heaven and things on earth. And church, we see this. We see this eternal and perfect and loving plan even in the design of the covenant which would occupy the most holy place. You know, when we are studying the Old Testament, I think it can feel to many of us like it's very complicated. It doesn't feel simple to us. It feels complicated and clunky and like it's it's got too many details. A few months ago, I was... I was meeting with someone at the Perkins Diner over on Kirkwood, and at that point, this person was not a Christian, and they were not a part of our church. Since then, they have put their faith in Christ, and they are a Christian, been baptized, and are very much a part of our church. But I remember sitting with them there, and I said, hey, you've been coming around a little bit. You've been attending church. You've hung out with the people here at Redeemer, but what do you think about the gospel? What do you think about the message of the Bible, and do you believe it? And he said, Joel, I I honestly don't think I really know what the gospel is. Can you tell it to me? And in that moment, I just felt like like I was supposed to share the gospel by giving him a physical illustration. And so I, I pushed my pancakes away and I said, all right, man, here it is. The gospel is that there is a God who is good and holy and loving and just. And I took the salt shaker and I put it on this side of the table to represent God. And I said, but listen, there's a problem because we, you and I and everybody else, are sinful people. We've rebelled against God. And I took the dark syrup and I put it on this side of the table. And I said, dude, it's a big problem because God in his holiness and justice is actively coming against our sin. He's going to judge us. There is such a thing as wrath. There is a thing called hell. eternal punishment for those who rebel against this God. The salt is coming against the syrup. But then I said, but God has created a solution to this problem. I said, he sent his son to come in between God's wrath and sinful humanity. And I took the ketchup and I put it in between the salt and the syrup. I said, he sent his son to come in between God's wrath and sinful humanity. And I said that his son died on that cross and shed his blood. I did not spray the ketchup in that moment. (laughs) 
But I said, through his death and shed blood, all of God's wrath has been absorbed by the Son, blocking it from you and I. All of it was absorbed so that none of it remains. So that if you are over here, all you need to do to be saved is to look at Christ the Son and say, I believe that he did that for me and I devote my life to him. If you do that, you will be saved. My friend stood there with wide eyes. He said, are you serious? He said, is it that simple, Joel? And friends, I, I'd be lying if I, if I didn't think to myself, did I just make it too simple? I'm serious. Like I had the thought, like maybe I should have used bigger words. Justification, sanctification, glorification, expiation. Maybe, maybe that was necessary. Friends, is it as simple as that? The answer is yes, it is. The answer is yes. And we see how simple it is even by looking at the seemingly more complicated parts of God's word. The Ark of the Covenant is a perfect and simple picture of exactly what I said to my friend at that diner table. Think about it with me. You have God's holy presence, which it says is going to be above the mercy seat. That's the salt shaker. And then you have the content of the Ark, which is the law, the testimony, which condemns us in our sin. And it reminds us of the inability to come near to God that's the syrup there, there must be a separation between them and we know the wrath of God is coming against us we have a big problem but then there is mercy the cover which comes in between them and not just the mercy seat itself but what will happen upon that mercy seat Hebrews chapter 9 says that no one is allowed into the holy of holies except for the high priest the chosen mediator between God and man and he was to come into that place only once a year and he should never come into that place without bringing blood with him once a year on the Day of Atonement, the high priest would come into the Holy of Holies and he would take the blood of bulls and goats. And what would he do with that blood? Leviticus chapter 16 says that he would come in carefully. He would come in prayerfully. He would come in having confessed his sins and purified his body and put on clean garments. He would come in and he would sprinkle blood on that mercy seat. Think about that. The Ark of the Covenant is a profoundly simple depiction of the gospel. God's justice and holiness above, man's sin and condemnation below, and the mercy made possible through blood in between. Church, God is not only acquiescing towards us, he is not begrudgingly wanting to dwell with us. No, he has always been, this has always been his intentional plan. It has always been his design that in the fullness of time, he would send his son Jesus to be the sacrificial lamb, to die in our place, to absorb the wrath of God so that none of it would touch us and anyone who calls upon his name might be saved. The Ark of the Covenant perfectly pictures God God's holiness and mercy for sinful people. We don't need to complicate it. The Old Testament doesn't even complicate it. It's simple. For God so loved the world that he sent his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him might not perish but have everlasting life. This is mercy. Friend, do you know what mercy is? We often talk about grace in the church. Grace is when you are given something that you did not deserve as a gift. So our salvation is by grace alone because we didn't deserve it, we can't earn it. It is a free gift given by God. But the grace of the gospel comes through the mercy of the gospel. 
Mercy is when you are not given something that you do deserve. What do we deserve? Wrath of God. God's judgment. But he has through his mercy, through his atoning sacrifice, this, this phrase, the mercy seat, in many translations, it is, it is written as the atonement cover because it is through blood that, that atonement is made. We are spared from that which was rightly coming against us. This is the gospel. It's not complicated. Jesus, our great high priest, has entered into the ultimate holy of holies, into heaven itself, and he has shed his own blood for the sins of his people so that anyone who believes in him as the mediator between God and man will be saved. And friends, think about how central this is for God's people. The Ark of the Covenant would go everywhere the people of Israel went. It was at the very center of their camp and their identity. It was at the very center of their lives. Why? Because it is a picture of how God's grace in and through the gospel and in his son who would be sent at a later time for these Israelites. It was a picture of that grace and how it is supposed to be absolutely central to our lives. The Ark points forward to Jesus. But it also reminds us that he is a holy God. And the Ark of the Covenant gives weight and substance to our joy in the gospel. Listen, we must sing and dance and rejoice before his presence, even as David did, because there is fullness of joy in his presence. But we must also have moments when we consider how weighty and serious and truly glorious this mercy is because of his holiness and justice. We must consider how to live our entire lives with his power and his holiness and his grace at the center of it all. Redeemer family, I think one of the greatest needs in the church today and in the Christian life is that we would learn to celebrate the grace of not God, not tritely, but with a sober awareness of his holiness. We must grow in our respect and awe and adoration and reverence of God. We must humbly acknowledge how different he is from us how holy he is, how weighty he is in his glory. We will enjoy and celebrate his mercy more when we keep his holiness and the weight of his glory before our eyes. This is one of the reasons why we believe that we are to celebrate the communion meal every single week. The Lord's Supper is a way for us to remember the holiness of God and also the simplicity and the goodness of the gospel. Friends, can I ask you to quietly stand with me?